Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, Politically Direct, and The Young Turks. You know, wear off on, you know, like you got the cooties and stuff like that there, but hell, they pick out my damn clothes, you know what I'm saying? It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. The Intelligence Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center keeps tabs on the growing activity of hate groups in this country. And they've just come out with a new report of who's hating who. Joining us now is the project's director, Mark Potok. So, Mark, in the world of hate, Who's tomorrow's news and who's yesterday's news? Well, I would say that the fastest rising group out there and probably the scariest one is a group called the National Socialist Movement. Uh, This is a neo-Nazi group that's been around for something like 30 years, but basically was a tiny and insignificant little group on the fringes of uh, the fringe movement that is the neo-Nazi movement. What's happened, though, very recently is that essentially the three big old-line Nazi groups have more or less collapsed, and this group has kind of surged to the fore. What were the groups that collapsed, and why did they collapse? Well, three major groups, the Aryan Nations, the World Church of the Creator, and the National Alliance all collapsed. The Aryan Nations fell apart after we sued the group in the year 2000, and it was finished off by the death of its founder. And just quickly, what what was that lawsuit about? Our lawsuit was brought on behalf of a woman and her son who drove by the compound in Idaho of this group. Several security guards who thought for some reason that the Jews, quote-unquote, were attacking, uh, lit out after this woman after her car backfired. They thought they were being fired on, apparently, and started shooting at her. They were literally standing in the bed of a pickup truck hurtling down a road shooting at her and her son. In the end, she was not hurt, although she was frightened very nearly to death. But in any event, we brought a suit over that incident. These are creeps who've watched too many conflict movies, haven't they? I guess so. I mean, you know, these guys are out of a movie. I mean, they used to have this compound that uh, had a guard tower, you know, whites-only signs, big old swastika flag hanging from a tower. They used to patrol the grounds with German shepherds. But they're uh, they're yesterday's news because of your lawsuit. I mean, That's true. They were really splintered by the lawsuit. There are a few tiny remnants of Aryan nations out there but completely insignificant in the organization in, in Idaho and the Pacific Northwest is smashed. How about, really destroyed. how about World Church of the Creator? I know that's a group that y'all have watched in, for a long time, and I, I, I think they've kind of gone by the wayside. Haven't yeah, they? well, the World Church of the Creator also ran into big trouble. In 2004, their leader, Matt Hale, who's from uh, central Illinois, was involved in a trial in Chicago. A group had sued his group over their name. There was a copyright dispute over the name World Church of the Creator. Ultimately, Hale turned to his so-called security chief and solicited the murder of the judge, the federal judge who was hearing this case. Unfortunately for Matt Hale, it turned out that Tony Evola was a federal informant working for the FBI, 
and Mr. Hale is now spending uh, the start of a 40-year term in federal prison as a result. Okay, we got that one out of the way. Yeah, the whole group just yeah. fell apart so, and collapsed so, after so, that. Okay, so who else is collapsing in the world of hate? Well, the other big one is the National Alliance. National Alliance, in fact, has been, until just the last couple of years, the most important hate group in America, I think, without question, over the course of the last 30 years or so. The National Alliance was founded and long led by William Pierce, who listeners may remember is the man who wrote the Turner Diaries, the novel that the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 was actually based on. Okay, uh, this so, was really quite a group. Uh, so, it, so they've disappeared? They have not disappeared, but they have largely fallen apart. They're about a seventh or an eighth the size they were two or three years ago when their leader died. A lot of this actually is because of not a suit that we brought, but things we published in the magazine I edit. Uh, the most important thing was we published a secret speech by the leader of this group in which he was calling members of other hate groups freaks and weaklings. Yeah, I saw that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, this, this had the effect of wrecking the yeah. group. But hate is still alive and well in America, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, we have just oh. published, in fact, our new list of hate groups, and we counted 803 hate groups that were active in calendar year 2005. And that's a jump over both the year before and the last five years. In fact, there's been a 33% increase since 2000. I'm talking with Mark Potok of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And when we come back, we're going to talk about these people who are actually picketing and shouting at the funerals of American soldiers who died in Iraq. Joining me today is a man whose uh, first book, The Emerging Republican Majority, I read as a young Democratic activist back in 1969, and it scared the hell out of me. And uh, I'm amazed that over time his thinking would evolve to a place where we can welcome him today to Air America Radio. Kevin Phillips, thank you for joining us on Politically Direct. Nice to be with you. And, you know, it is extraordinary to me, the evolution of your thinking. You were, in many ways, if not the architect, certainly the predictor of what became the Republican majority of the last three decades. Yet, you've seen some of the results of that, and they've come to worry you in terms of the politics and governance of our nation. The one that worries me the most was one that... I think was on hardly any of our radars back in the 1960s. You got some sense by the 70s, but none back in the 60s. And that was the extent to which the movement of the South into the Republican Party would make an enormous difference religiously. As the South became the mainstay of the Republican Party, it pumped a huge number of evangelical, fundamentalist, and Pentecostal uh, very religious people into the Republican Party at the same time as it already had the bulk of the Northern Protestants, and you were simultaneously getting a lot of urban ethnic Catholics coming into the Republican Party, and the upshot was you got the Republican electorate turning into a very religious electorate at just the same time that 
the role of the religious right in politics was heating up and the whole sense of the Middle East as the, the battleground of the world, but also the battleground of the Bible came into uh, focus. And the combination of all of these things, in my opinion, has created a, uh, a little understood but enormous problem within the Republican coalition for the country. Well, I want to talk about that in some detail here. In your new book, American Theocracy, which is a remarkable book, it articulates uh, this is one of the legs, particularly the ascension of, as you call it, too many preachers within the country, certainly within the Republican Party. I want to sort of take a broader view before we get into the short straws of your thesis here. And the broader view is is that if we go back and look at the division between North and South in this country that goes back to the Civil War, there was a great polarization that for a long time, because the Democrats controlled so much of the South so much by default, it didn't play out electorally in the way that it did when that coalition started to break apart after LBJ. My question to you is, is this split, this north-south split, still something that fundamentally can't ever really be breached? Are we looking at two parts of America that, in some respects, may have been better off if they'd managed to separate? I think it's going to be very hard to bridge the differences. On the other hand, you have to look at countries that have the same sort of differences and have with some difficulty managed to uh, live with them and deal with them. In Canada, for example, Ontario and Quebec, they can't stand each other. Sure. And they tell jokes about each other, but they stay in the same country, even though some of them would like to have that not happen. Right. I think the division between the, uh, the South and the North, especially the, uh, the Northeast, uh, New England and the Great Lakes and out to Oregon and Washington, is really a pretty sharp division. I don't think it's going to go away. And what's brought it to its new head is that because of the redistribution of population in the last 30 or 40 years, the greater south has become the most important part of the country. Well, let's focus on that, and particularly on the religiosity of the greater south. This, too, it seems to be more than just you know what happened at Gettysburg. You're talking now about something that is so fundamental, so intrinsic to people's worldview, which is whether or not, if they are fundamentalists, they believe, frankly, that in some cases, and you talk about this a lot in American theocracy, that we're on the verge of end times. And if you hold that belief, it doesn't it transcend any sort of worldly politics and political concerns so that, frankly, argument can't come into play. Rational argument with that worldview really doesn't occur. I think that's a good shorthand description, and since I've been getting into this a lot, even more in my mind as I was out on the, the book tour circuit, let me embellish it a little bit. You've got roughly half of the population of American Christians, at least, who believe in the end times in Armageddon. And my guess is that that's probably 55 or 60 percent of the Bush electorate. Now, having said that, let me put it into a slightly lower gear. In terms of people whose active religious mentality is absorbed by this, who put this first and foremost, maybe it's 20 percent, maybe it's 18 percent of the country, but it may still be 35 percent of the Republican electorate. Now, if these people believe in all this, 
They're not worried about the environment. They're not worried about the budget deficit. They're not even necessarily very worried about the debt that they've gotten into. And the upshot is they are sufficiently religiously focused not to care about much else. And this has anesthetized a large electorate in the South and the border states and Southwest that used to be Democratic and was the mainstay of economic activism under the William Jennings Bryan era and during the New Deal. And for these people to be anesthetized and not dealing with these issues is not only a huge problem for the Democratic Party, it's a huge problem for any intelligent balance of argument within the United States. Well, again, you talk about the phrase intelligent balance of argument. It struck me that in looking at the results of both 2000 and 2004, people have asked me repeatedly, how do you explain this? And I think the division is based on what might be called reality-based thinking, and the other is faith-based thinking, there is no common ground. It's almost as if two different languages are spoken. I think that's right. And to an increasing degree, that's been a gap between the parties. But it's also a very, very significant cleavage within both parties. And let me give you an example. In Ohio this year, the Republican nominee will be a very religious, ultra-right-wing black named Ken Blackwell. We're all very familiar with Ken Blackwell from his role as Secretary of State in Ohio. Yeah, but he's expected to make inroads in the black community, considerable inroads. And I think that'll happen. At the same time... I think that the Democrats will make major inroads among the non-evangelical Protestants and the moderate Catholics. And this will have the effect, possibly, of increasing the religiosity as a division between the parties even more with the, the people moving to the Democrats being easygoing sort of Protestants and Catholics, not irreligious, but not very religious, and an element of the blacks who are very religious. We saw some of that in the Ohio results. Wasn't it something like 16% of the uh, African-American vote went to George Bush in 2004 in Ohio, which was twice what he got nationally, and may have been the margin of difference in the presidential election? Well, that's certainly an aspect. One of the things that moved blacks in 2004 in states where the gay marriage thing was on the ballot was a very strong opposition, especially those that belong to actively conservative evangelical fundamentalists and Pentecostal denominations. And that's where Blackwell's appeal is going to climb. I keep coming back to this fundamental question, if you'll pardon the expression, is how does one even approach a divide that allows for no sort of place to meet in the dialogue? If we believe, as I would consider myself a secularist, as a secularist, I believe in a rational discussion to form public policy. As a faith-based voter, there's no way I am concerned with those that sequence of thinking. That doesn't enter into my judgment when I go cast my vote. How do those two groups ever find common ground? I think the opportunity, and this, this may sound a little odd, but I think the opportunity is George W. Bush. And the reason I say that is the man's job numbers are down to... 31, 32, 33, 34, depending on what poll you look at. Harris has him at 29% and dropping. Really? Mm -hmm. But what that means is he's lost the confidence of an incredible number of people. And many of them have to be evangelicals and fundamentalists. And 
in the course of going around and talking about American theocracy, I would sometimes get asked what a theocracy was. And I would usually say, rule by the godly or churchly. And then somebody pointed out to me that there was an even more interesting meaning that wasn't often pursued. Rule by people who thought they spoke for God. Rule by people who invoked the deity. Now, George W. Bush, in a number of things, has said that he thought God wanted him to run for president, that God directed him to do this or that in the Middle East, and then most tellingly, in my opinion, in, in Pennsylvania in the summer of 2004, in Lancaster County, he told a bunch of old order Amish, and this is what they repeated when they came out of the meeting. He said, I trust God speaks through me. Without that, I couldn't do my job. That is a classic definition of theocracy, but it's also a classic definition of what a lot of people would think would be presumptuous and delusional. And I think if things like this become an issue, the major portions of his coalition are going to say, hey, wait a minute. And it's not a cry that you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right now we're back with Mark Potok, director of the Intelligence Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. The project has just released a report on hate groups in this country, which now number more than 800, and they're increasing all the time. Mark, what's feeding all that besides neocon politics? I think in the biggest kind of macro sense, it is the effects of globalization, both economic dislocations and troubles that kind of create, especially in working class people, uh, a kind of opening for uh, radical propaganda, and more particularly in immigration, uh, globalization's effect on immigration, not only in this country, but in Western Europe, which is also suffering with the radical right uh, kind of backlash, neo-Nazi movement. We all, everybody, when they think of hate group, of course, they think of the Ku Klux Klan. People aren't familiar with things like the White Revolution, the National Vanguard, the Aryan Nation, or the Creativity Movement. Those are groups that your organization follows, but they're not on the end of the tongue of most Americans. But the Ku Klux Klan is something that uh, everybody knows about. What's happening with that more traditional hate group? Well, essentially, it has become very unimportant. There are about 36 different named Klan groups right now. They're more often at war with one another. You know, we're the real true Klan, and the other guys aren't sort of thing, than they are with their, their uh, official enemies. They're arguing about their choice of sheets these days, from what I understand. I like that, and they're, they're very small. I mean, there may be uh, six, perhaps the most, 7,000 Klansmen uh, organized into all these groups across the country. And that makes the Klan a very small part of the uh, larger radical right. And, you know, the kind of amusing thing at this point is that the, most people in other groups on the radical right, especially the neo-Nazi groups, very much look down on the Klan. They see them as uh, <laughs> old guys. buffoons, yeah, old guys, people who really don't have anything to offer the movement or are yeah. stuck in the past and so on. Well, so what I'm wondering here then, what's some of the ways that the hate groups are attracting people to their organizations? Well, a few things. Uh, for the last 10 years or so, they have been making good use of the Internet. That is a very important tool for them, mainly because it has allowed them to reach uh, demographics, really constituencies they've never been able to reach. For instance, middle, upper middle class teens, 
white kids headed to college, and those are the kind of people they're really very interested in bringing into their groups. Matter of fact, wasn't didn't they have something called Operation Schoolyard where they handed out what was it? A, a hundred thousand CDs. Yeah. Let me say that I was going to say the second a very important uh, kind of recruiting mechanism has been white power music, and that's developed uh, more and more over the last few years. And it is true that about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, one of the racist labels called Panzerfaust Records attempted to distribute 100,000 CDs of white power music, of racist music, to kids in middle schools and high schools. Well, I mean, they just literally went to the schoolyard and started handing, handing out racist Well, C- that was the rhetoric. In fact, that was probably only done in a, in a few cases. Ultimately, you know, they called this thing Operation Schoolyard, which you can imagine got quite a reaction in the national <laughs> press. And it also, you know, you'd think they would might have thought of this beforehand, got a reaction out of local police in Minnesota, where they were who raided uh, Panzerfaust Records and found that its founder, Anthony Pierpont, you know, had several lines of cocaine on his desk and some marijuana and, and so on. <laughs> Made so that convenient was, for the authorities, right? Yeah, well, so, that, that, so he was arrested. Uh, it was a fairly minor charge. Right around the same time, we put up on our website, we printed something which we knew would essentially destroy Panzerfaust, which was the birth certificate of Anthony Pierpont showing that his mom, in fact, was a Mexican woman. And while that may be a low blow, you know, that's not allowed if you're an Aryan. And it had the effect of completely destroying Panzerfaust. It was boycotted by everyone else in the white power movement, and it simply collapsed. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you, if you look at all these stories, I mean, if, if you follow these stories, it's almost as if they always collapse on their own weight because of the mentality and the intellect behind the group. Uh, there's yeah, always... that's true. I mean, we try very hard to help them along. Now, I, I'm wondering, there's a couple of other things I wanted to... The, the war in Iraq, how did the hate groups respond to the war in Iraq? Well, by and large, the extreme right, well, pretty much across the board, the extreme right uh, completely opposes the war in Iraq and has from the beginning, from before we even went in there. Uh, You know, basically, the war is seen as a war provoked by and for the Jews, quote-unquote. You know, this is uh, America at the mercy of neocons who are really only interested in doing Israel's bidding and so on. Always, that's, that's an, especially... always an underlying theme of these hate Yeah, groups. well, this go- that's right. And, you know, I mean, really, the American radical right has been quite not fine. Yeah. It's much more about the Jews than it is about black people uh, you know, or brown people or, or other people. Hispanic immigration, what are the hate groups doing with that these days? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the hate groups are uh, universally opposed to Hispanic immigration. But in a way, what's more important is this larger movement, the Minuteman groups and so on, which are not, strictly speaking, hate groups, but which are led by people who are very scary people. We just put out uh, a series of profiles, kind of investigative profiles of 20 or 30 of the top leaders of this group, and they're frightening people. Many of them are open racists, but many of those who aren't or don't particularly display their racism nevertheless are very unhinged and dangerous-seeming people. And others just seem completely wacky, filled with crazy ideas and theories. Right, right. This Westboro Baptist Church, uh, these evangelicals out at the Westboro Baptist Church, now, are they part of any of these... I mean, these are the people that they picketed the funerals of soldiers saying that God was punishing America for homosexuality. Yeah, I'm not even sure if it's fair to call them uh, fundamentalists, actually. Well, they're kind of a renegade Baptist church. Baptists, as you probably know, 
uh, have a great deal of doctrinal freedom from church congregation. But they so, call themselves Baptists. They I mean, do. They, I think they're a big embarrassment to uh, Baptists in general. But in any event, they are a church in uh, Topeka, Kansas, run essentially by one man, Fred Phelps. Almost all the congregants are his family, his children and great and grandchildren. He's had a slew of kids, if I remember, 13. Almost all of them are lawyers. In any event, this is a group that, <laughs> that thinks... That doesn't speak well for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is a group that is all about the idea that the United States is too friendly to homosexuals and therefore is being destroyed by God. Most recently, I mean, they've just engaged in the most incredible tactics for years. They, for instance, picketed the funeral of Matthew Shepard, the uh, gay student murdered in uh, 98 in Wyoming, you know, carrying signs saying, thank God for AIDS. Mm. Now they're picketing the, sol- the, the funerals of soldiers killed in Iraq, saying, thank God for dead soldiers. Seems to me, and, though, if the, if the, I mean, they're still calling themselves the Westboro Baptist Church. It seems like the Baptist Church should be able to do something about that. Yeah, I, apparently, for some reason, they feel they can't. And I just, you know, we're getting into doctrinal matters within the church. I don't uh, fully understand, but yes. But how uh, could you not consider that a hate part of the hate group? It is a hate group. Yeah. We've listed Westboro Baptist Church as a hate group for many, many years. So, Mark Potok, thanks for giving us the state of hate in America. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks Mike. for I do joining us. It. Oh, thanks, Mark. Mark Potok is director of the Intelligence Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. To see their report on hate groups, you can go to splcenter.org. Welcome back. We're talking with Kevin Phillips. His new book is American Theocracy. It's an extraordinary book, and it is a compelling look at our politics today. And, Kevin, before the break, we were talking about the theocracy part of your book. I'd like to talk about the other two components that you address, starting with our reliance on big oil and energy. That's uh, one of the major parts of your book. Talk about that. The United States, uh, historically, is the oil power. Just as Britain owed its dominance to coal, we owed it and still owe it to oil. Oil became important in the United States in the 19th century. By the 20th century, it was our control of oil that made us the fueling pump, so to speak, of the Allies in both world wars. And we've since been able to uphold that role, even though we no longer produce nearly as much of the oil and only 40% of what we need as a country. But I think this is coming to an end because one of the ramifications of a very badly handled uh, situation in Iraq has been the growing animosity in the Middle East at the same time as the disruption of the oil supplies from Iraq and now elements of disruption or at least threatened disruption from Iran. And the long and the short, this is coming just at a time when we need more oil and the price of oil is rising and we're not going to be able to afford it. I think that the mistakes in the Middle East, which were very much oil-related, no matter how much they pretend otherwise, have had the effect of greatly weakening the United States' position in the energy markets and putting in great danger our historical role as the great power that was tied to and therefore was able to partly rule through oil. This is an enormous subtext to the whole circumstance that the media don't want to discuss at all. Have you been following uh, what Al Gore has been doing and going around the country talking about global warming? 
I haven't followed his speeches. I think I agree with the, call it the centrist liberal position on global warming. I've never been quite sure what his is, but I know what the administration's is. They can't even talk about it. Well, they still don't believe that there's any scientific proof, which is stunning. And again, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is this whole idea of faith-based approach to politics. You know, global warming really doesn't matter if you're not going to be around on the planet come the end times. I asked you about Al Gore specifically because it seems that one of the ways in which there's actually a rethinking, particularly among young people, about our reliance on fossil fuels is the whole consequence of that, not just in terms of geopolitics, but in terms of the life of the planet. And that seems to be resonating with a new generation that may actually begin to re-examine things that, say, the baby boomers have not. There's no doubt that we're going to have to re-examine and I have a lot of doubts about the ability of the Republican coalition to do the re-examining. My only caution on the Democratic coalition would be that oil and gas and to a fair degree coal are so entrenched in this country that it's very difficult for me to see that everything from regulation to subsidies to tax breaks for the oil industry and the size of lobbies in Washington can really be mobilized in a way that would make any difference to our oil dependence, especially as long as most people are driving the long distances they are in the big cars that they are driving. So I'm leery of this as a, a real alternative for the United States, much as I think we have to pursue it as something that might make up 10, 20 percent of the energy supply, hopefully in five or ten years. We're uh, short on time, but I, I want to wrap up with where we began and talking about American theocracy and particularly the theocratic component of that. How do you see the future playing out? We've become a country now where it seems that God is a very important part of anyone who seeks the platform of anyone who seeks public office. And indeed, you know, I think it would be easier for uh, an avowed child molester to be elected than an avowed atheist in American politics today. How do you see the future playing out in terms of the role religion will play in our politics? Is this inexorably? Are we going to remain a theocracy as far down the road as you can see? Well, first of all, the theocratic debate is, is one over direction. A lot of people would quarrel unless I was specifically in my mode of talking about rule through the godly or someone who believes he speaks for God. But I think that the problem is really going to come to a head this year and in 2008. You've got the Ohio race, which is going to be a major bellwether. You've got the Pennsylvania Senate race. Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum. Uh, he should lose. I think he probably will. But these two together are going to put it all on the table. How low can the president's job numbers go, and how soon is he going to be forced to have the religious debate over what he means and what he's tried to do and what he's tried to stand for? So I don't think we're looking at this dragging on for a couple of decades or something. I think the crest is within the next three to five years. And you believe that there will be an open and public debate about some of the ideas that are at the core of this, including fundamentalist thinking? I'm not sure it's going to be open and public because most public officials won't want to touch it, and the ones who would want to touch it are probably too far left to do the broader debate any good. But basically, I just think it comes out of the whole way George W. Bush has done business. He's holding himself out as God's voice on earth in some ways. I realize this is a difficult thing to grapple with, but... It's an enormously controversial thing which really hasn't raised its head before, 
I think the people are ready for the discussion far more than the Washington Press is, but I think that is the critical dimension in the next couple of years. Well, thank you for bringing that discussion to the forefront with this, again, this remarkable book, American Theocracy. I encourage people to go out and get it, and thank you for joining us on Politically Direct. Thank you. Let's go to Daryl in Oklahoma. On line one. Hey, Daryl. Hey, uh, first of all, I'd like to say I I consider myself a liberal, mm-hmm. although my comments probably won't uh, right. be in line with a lot of the liberal philosophies regarding homosexuality. Right, that's good. First know. of all, um, I would go. like to say, I'm sorry? No, you, I said, here we go. Here we go, because <laughs> you don't like gay people, right? Uh, buckle up. No, no, I don't have a problem with gay people. No, of course uh, not. I don't prescribe to the gay lifestyle. I am a Christian. Uh, as you previously stated, the Bible does uh, explicitly say that homosexuality is forbidden. Uh, I think uh, a person who, who feels gay, uh, well, my, my belief is that homosexuality is more spiritual. It, it is as manifested physically. Daryl, 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 can I ask you a question? Yes. Are you, are you attracted to men? I beg your pardon? Are you attracted to men sexually? No. Well, then how the hell do you know whether homosexuality is spiritual or not? How do you know what it is? You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) Why are you talking to me that better? Uh, I'm just explaining what I believe. I understand, but I I mean, I'm talking to you in that manner because people call up and say that other people are are different when they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to talk to them in this manner. I mean, how do you know what homosexuality is? You just said you're not attracted to men. I take you at your word. No, I I haven't. Listen, I haven't said that 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 I don't understand why somebody might be attracted to a person of the same sex. That's interesting. What do you mean by wrong. that? Darryl? I mean, I mean, it's what, a lot well, of hold things. Hold on, Daryl. Well, I'm interested by what you just said. What do you mean by that? Word that you? Were... I mean that I understand my belief. This is what my belief. I believe that uh, people who are attracted to uh, same sex individuals are uh, victims of uh, a satanic uh, uh, design uh. to 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 uh, to destroy really the family. All right, Daryl. Daryl, let me ask you another question. Has Satan ever talked to you about this? Uh, and I'm being serious. Uh, I like, beg your pardon. Has Satan ever talked to you about this? Has he ever whispered in your ear, maybe it might be interesting if you lay with a man? No. Never. Never. <laughs> so okay, no, all right, no, I understand that. So Ben asked a really good question, and I'm not trying to get in your face. I'm just asking. So how do you know if if you've never had a conversation with Satan that other people are having conversations with Satan? Uh, I don't necessarily believe people are particularly having conversations. I believe sin, sin period, is is satanic. Uh, uh, the what is satanic? Sin. 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 S i n. And it is derived from the devil. <laughs> and of course, all right, it is. All right, Darryl, you let, let me Bible. ask you another question. Let me ask you another question. Okay. If you read the Bible, and I really encourage you to go ahead and do so. For example, uh, for example, in Leviticus, where it says, "You shall not lie with a man." Right. It's the old. Devil. Yeah. Uh, no, and I know that's all right. It also says that you should, if you you should not wear clothes of two different cloths. Is that sin? And that is clear. No, no, no. It's not a question. It's an answer. That's clearly sin. It says it's an abomination against God. Daryl, have you ever worn clothing of two different clothing types? 
Close. Fabrics. Fabrics. That's the word I'm looking for. Daryl. Have you yeah, I'm here. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, you know, I, I don't claim to understand everything. Uh, uh, I think that some things are, are in the Bible are, are, are religious in nature, meaning that they don't have anything to do with uh, with God necessarily. Oh, and I see. Well, then how did you wait, Daryl? How do you make the distinction of did God really? It's so he mean the homosexuality right. thing, but he didn't mean the two fabric thing. How do you well, make that distinction? All, first of all. Let me say this: Some things in the Bible were were uh, rules or laws were handed down. Some of them are situational, or some of them were had to do with uh, cultural. So mores. I, I got you, Daryl. I'm very curious, and I'm being dead serious about this. How you made the choice? By the way, that those two verses are right next to each other in Leviticus, right next to each other. How do, in the shrimp verse is the is in between them. They're all three of them are right next to each other. So and also how the did Bible you? Suggests oh, we should eat swine, and I love pork. So right, I, I, I got you. So how, how do you make the distinction of whether you should follow the okay the gay one? That's real. I'm going to follow that one. Shrimp one and the uh, fabric one. Uh, that's a more cultural more thing. I'm going to dismiss it. Daryl, how do you make that distinction? Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I make the distinction between a homosexuality okay. and some of the other things. Uh, this is what I believe, and I think um, I think uh, logically, uh, logic will back me up on this. Oh, I can't sex, wait for that. Listen, listen, listen. Sex was create uh, was designed, and again, I'm going from a religious, my religious point of view, mm-hmm. was designed by the Creator, that being God, for primarily for marriage. Okay, and to uh, is an expression of love between a man and a woman, but also designed to procreate. That is to father or, or, or parent children. That makes sense. That is to perpetuate you know, the species. I got you, Daryl. Hold on, hold on, Daryl. That's very logical. Okay, I hear you on that. So let me ask you a logical question. Have you ever masturbated? Yes, I have, and I have been in sin when I did it. Okay, all right. So how many times do you think you've been in sin in your life, then, uh, through masturbation? Oh, God, a lot. How many times today? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so in yeah. your life. All right, so wait, now, if the masturbation does not lead to procreation, because that's your real issue, you're saying, with the, you know, logic. You said logic. So, and uh, being gay doesn't lead to procreation, so then I guess they're equal. Uh, I would say yes. I would say absolutely yes. And this is what I would say to you, okay. in that. No. I don't think one sin is any worse than the other. The Bible suggests that, that one sin is, is not worse than the other, although there is a um, category, if you will, of sin that's called an abomination, which uh, is viewed... Which, by uh, the way, the shrimp and the fabric thing totally uh, fall uh, what, into. Uh, what about killing a guy? Is that the same as being gay, then? They're both sins. I beg your pardon? What about killing a guy? They're both sins. Well, you know, killing a guy... My personal opinion, I don't know if God, I don't claim to know everything, how God thinks about everything. Just about okay, what God thinks but, about gay people. But, but I would say God. that my personal opinion is killing a person is the worst thing you could do. All right. Well, let me ask so, you this, Daryl. I, I, uh, you, uh, when you, uh, you, like, you, you see a woman, you're, you're attracted to her, right? Yes. Right? You wanna, I mean, there are women you've seen and you want to have sex with them, right? No, actually, I'm, I'm a Christian. And I can, I can, I can. Um, no, but I mean, there, there are women who you have felt desire for, and you've. Uh, in, you my, met... in my, in my, in my past, I'm currently dating someone. Right. We're planning on getting married. Okay, no, that's uh, right. Well, let's let's use her. You're sexually attracted to this woman who you're dating and planning on getting married to, right? There's nothing wrong with me being sexually attracted. No, to no absolutely, not. absolutely not. You are sexually attracted to her, right? 
Absolutely. How would you like it if somebody said that it was a sin against God, that your sort of core belief of attraction to her was a sin against God and an abomination? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't like it, but furthermore, I, I, I would disagree with it. But, but I, I would answer that no, I would not like it. Yeah, well, that's what that's what you're saying about gay people, and uh, well, and, and I understand. No, no, that is exactly what you're saying about gay people, and you can. Well, Daryl, hang I, on I, a second, Daryl. Wait a minute. You can couch it all you like, and hey, these are just my beliefs, and they are your beliefs, and you're an American, and you get to have those beliefs. But those beliefs that you have, that you think you've gotten out of the Bible in some wildly illogical way, I might add, Daryl, you're doing exactly that. You are saying to the gay people of this country who don't want to be gay, they're this is the way they are. You're saying to them. Yeah, you're a sinner, and that core basic instinct that makes you want to sleep with your fiancé, that makes them want to sleep with another guy, if we're talking about gay men, you are saying that that's sin. It is precisely like saying that that feeling that you have is but sinful. Say, so you should at least know that that is precisely what you're doing. Can I say one thing? Sure. sure. Yeah. I would say that uh, the desire for a man for another man or a woman for another woman is inordinate, and, and I think it, it, it goes against the very laws of nature and the very laws of God. However... <laughs> I don't believe that uh, how could it go a person... How could it oh, go let against... me finish my statement. Please let me finish my statement. Then you can ask me a question. I'm sorry. Uh, however, I don't believe that a, if a person feels a certain way toward a man or woman, it does not act it out. That person is to, in sin. I think that person is right. in jeopardy of being in sin. All right, I, I, got, I, I got it. I got it. I, I heard that point. So let me ask you two questions to that then. If if you believed, uh, if, if, if we reverse this and we decide that the desire for a woman uh, is sinful, do you think it would be easy for you not to act on that, to never have sex with a woman because it was sinful? Could you do it? Do you think you could do it? Uh, well, first of all, let me say this. No, I just believe, answer, the, answer that question. Could you do it if the roles were reversed and that was what was sinful in the Bible? Well, let me put it like this. That's like asking me if, if I were a woman. The, the, you're asking me a, a question that's not based in reality, so it's, it's, it's a logical question. No, it's because I, you, I tell you, no, it's totally based in reality. And what you have to understand, Daryl, is your desire with, to sleep with your fiancé is exactly the same as their desire to sleep with another man. So you were saying... <laughs> But it's not I'm funny, sorry. Daryl. It's precise. That, that is funny. That is ludicrous. But go ahead. I'm listening. Why is that ludicrous? You think that you desire that woman more than they desire that man? No, I'm not suggesting that one is, is more than the other. I, you, you said they're exactly alike. I'm, I'm dealing with the origin of I'm that I'm talking desire. about the feeling inside that makes us want to have sex because we're animals. That feeling uh, I, is the same. I, 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 would, I would give you that. So can you, could, could, you, could you crush those feelings? Could you subjugate those feelings? Um. I believe that in certain instances it is necessary to subjugate those feelings. Yeah, but how about in certain instances, instances of being your all, entire life? All the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Could you do it from Monday through Sunday, every day of the week, for the rest of your life? Uh, in general, no. That's yeah. why God created uh, us for each other. Uh, and I believe one that more question, Daryl, for you. You answered that one, uh, as I suspected you would. You said it's not natural. It's against God's law. It's not natural. Do you believe that there is homosexuality among animals in nature? Uh, I am aware that there is some homosexuality. It happens in nature, I might add. Is that, therefore, ah. does that make it any more chance that it's natural, that it happens in nature? Because you think the penguins are choosing to be gay? Well, let me say this. Just because something happens doesn't make it natural. Uh, what about if it happens among animals in nature? That strikes me as the most natural thing you can get. That's kind of the definition it's of Sort natural. of the definition of natural. Okay, right? let, me, let me explain this to you, then I'll let you go. All right. Uh, I believe that when... Sin into the world. There's a lot of things in the world, including 
things that occur in what we call nature mm-hmm. that are not in accordance with God's free span. If we uh, look back in Genesis, <laughs> the Genesis talks about uh, how the right, animals, so, right, the animals did not did not kill each other, or right. there was harmony within nature. Yeah, okay, so I just want to make sure that we're unclear on one thing: the penguins are sinners, right? Uh, Those gay they penguins. Are, they are committing what I view, and I don't. I'm not a, a, a expert on penguin sexual behavior, <laughs> but I do understand that there are some homosexual or okay, there's even, a gay pe- even 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 uh, some some asexual species. And the the homosexual penguins, though, just so we're clear, they're sinners. Uh, I wouldn't call them sinners because I don't think they have the same moral, moral equivalency of a human being. So but I don't. It, but, I, but they are committing sin. I say they are not because I don't think they have a moral conscience. Right. Yet, but they're unnatural, although they but they're unnatural. In but it's unnatural. But it, definitely, right. it definitely is unnatural. But again, I say that a penguin does not have a soul and okay. therefore does not have the moral conscience. Darrell, i got to ask you one last question. We're way over time here. One last question. You said earlier, and I liked your answer, that those all the sins are equivalent. You know, the masturbation, the sh- eating the shrimp, the homosexuality. They're the all lying sins. on your taxes, the lying because exactly. you think they're... Uh, uh, sure, exactly uh, right. in Iraq, whatever. I, I hear you, Daryl. I hear you on all that. So, Daryl, my last question to you is this. If they're all equal to eating the shrimp, to wearing the wrong fabric, and, uh, and being gay, why do you think your religious leaders chose being gay as the one they focus on, and they never talk about the eating the shrimp or wearing the fabric or any of the other things like stoning your kids to death? Why do you think I they never talk about that and they always talk about the gay thing? Well, why I do you think back, they pick that I, one out? I go back to my uh, uh, statement about homosexuality being an attack on the family. I think that the family is the very nucleus of our society. When you do something or you uh, perpetuate a particular lifestyle that does not uh, uh, further the family uh, uh, as, as the nucleus of a society. So, uh, I assume then, Daryl, I assume then that uh, your preacher will be going on a crusade, and I guess, suppose all the pro-life guys and everybody in the country and the Christian right is going to go on a crusade next of anti-masturbation. Well, I, again, I, I don't believe in masturbation. Right. I think it's a sin as well, but I don't okay. think they'll be crusading against it. Okay. Darryl, <laughs> so, oh, they won't, huh? That's surprising. Daryl, i got to tell you, you're, uh, we gotta, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for calling in. You, you sound like a good guy. You are dead wrong, 100% wrong on, master, on, on, well, on masturbation and on how you view gay people. And you're a good guy, man. Give it some thought. It doesn't mean you have to give up your faith in God, your belief in Christianity. You are clearly a good man. Uh, a caring man, you care about other people, you're not looking to send them to prison or stone them to death, but you were dead wrong and you were being divisive and you were making people feel terrible for who they are because of those beliefs and you ought to change them. And the family excuse is 100% bullshit, okay? And let me explain. You know what's uh, very important in the family? Whether the kid behaves or not, right? That's why they put that in the Old Testament. If the kid raises his, you know, uh, speaks against his mother or his father, he should be stoned to death. Now, by the way, it doesn't say that the gay should be stoned to death, but the kids should be stoned to death. That's more serious. But how come there's not a crusade against that? Perhaps, could it be, Daryl, could it be that your religious leaders are looking to make an enemy out of somebody and unite all of you against the others, the enemy, the bad people, and that perhaps at one point it was blacks, and at another point, it, it, earlier it was women. And now that they've had to have, find somebody else, and they couldn't make it their own kids, even though that is the most 
related to family. They couldn't do that. They couldn't make it masturbation because everybody masturbates. They couldn't make it sh uh, shrimp because that doesn't make any freaking sense. So they said, what's a logical enemy that we can get people to hate? Ah, right, I see a clause there here. There aren't that many of them. They feel bad anyway. I see a clause here. Let's concentrate on these gay people and try to crush them. Do it. That's what your religious leaders did. They brainwashed you, and I feel sorry for you. What would Jesus do? Jesus would, uh, Jesus would turn the other cheek. Jesus would, Jesus would hug them like that guy in the video. <laughs> Let's take Paul and Houston online, too, as quickly as we can, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a retired military and everything, and I have been in that, in that group, uh, you know, with that group sex and all that, but mostly women and stuff like that. But I'm married. Mo mostly I'm married for 21 years and all that. I mean, I got a couple of gay guys that stay across the street from me, an old lady and all that stuff, man. A lot of these guys out here think that gay stuff going to, like, you know, wear off on you, you know, like you got the cooties and stuff like that there, but hell, they pick out my damn clothes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Hell, they keep my old lady getting mad about that, but hell, uh, I mean, I go over there, we, you know, we, we, uh, you know, drink together and stuff like that, and, uh, shit, ain't nothing wrong with it, man. I mean, they got, I mean, I respect them just like they respect me. God bless you, Paul. <laughs> man, that was a funny, that was funny a call. Great, great call. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is the second time that I'm recording this, uh, you know, outro final note that I do. And the reason is because yesterday when I recorded it, I talked for too long and I exceeded a, uh, a file size limit that I didn't realize that I had. So that's why you didn't get this show yesterday, even though I tried very hard to get it out. What I talked about for too long is another podcast that I would like to recommend to all of you. Uh, after, after talking about Catalog of Ships, the, the post-plug experience has been nothing but very positive. And, you know, so the, the guys at Catalog of Ships responded. They posted something on their blog. You can go check that out at their website, catalogofships.com. And, you know, it's just been real fun, so I thought, hey, you know, that that worked out well, I'll do it again. And so, what I'm telling you that you have to go listen to now, and no, I mean, like, I'm not recommending it. I, I'm, I really am saying that you need to go listen to this. It's a podcast, it's called Wasting Time at Work. And basically what I'm thinking is that, you know, you listen to my show, and it's all about politics, and you get angry and maybe depressed and then you get excited and encouraged and you know it's just an it's an emotional roller coaster sometimes and so what wasting time at work is going to do for you it's only 10 minutes long you know each episode and it's it's going to cleanse your palate it's going to it's going to leave you refreshed after, uh, you know, and, and re-leveled and re-centered. It is the funniest podcast I've ever heard in my life. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. Now, the trick with their show is that they quit a while ago. They don't do it anymore. Uh, they claimed that they ran out of time to waste, so they had to stop doing it. 
And so what I would like to encourage you to do, and just, you know, when you go and you'll listen and you'll fall in love and all of that, and you'll say, oh, what a great show. And then, you know, eventually you'll get to the end and then you'll be sad it's done. Just think back to what I'm saying now and remember to send them angry emails and demand that they start doing their show again. Um, you know, because since they stopped doing their show, you know, Pat Robertson has still been saying crazy things. I mean, he predicted, you know, because God told him that there were going to be storms on the East Coast of the United States this year. You know, breaking news, everybody. And, you know, his plane just crashed, you know, not with him in it, but his pilots died and everything. And we don't have Philip and Michael from Wasting Time at Work to comment about it. And it's a, you know, it, it's a loss for, for everyone who ever listened to their show. So I just felt like it was my duty to do my part to do what I can to get them back on the air. And they were, they were going at a, you know, a, uh, a Blitzkrieg pace. They were doing a show five days a week, and you know maybe, maybe I uh, I understand that they ran out of time to waste, and so maybe they should just do it once a week or twice a week or something like that. But they can't just be gone forever. And when they quit, they did leave open the possibility that they may come back. And you know, all the fans are wondering, oh, maybe, and so we we don't unsubscribe, and it's really, so just go check them out, and you you won't regret it. They are a little bit trickier to find than your average podcast. They, for some reason, did not name their website wastingtimeatwork.com. Maybe that was already taken. Uh, they have a website called lovebumppoly.com love as in in love bump like speed bump and poly like wants a cracker uh when you listen to their show they will explain why they named it that you know it makes sense but but then whenever whenever anyone wants to talk about their show they got to explain this whole weird website to get people to actually be able to find it other than that you can find it in iTunes it's super easy and uh, they've got 50 full episodes up, plus a few extras here and there. So go check that out. It has my full endorsement. Uh, even though they quit a few months ago, I have every one of their episodes still on my computer. I haven't deleted a single one because I plan on keeping them forever. Oh, and a special treat for you. I couldn't tell you which episode they are in, but if you listen real closely, you will hear a couple of letters read on the show, written by yours truly. My name's Jay, by the way. Have I ever introduced myself? Not in the last several weeks, if not months, at least, but uh, if if you've written me an email, then you know that, but... Uh, my name's Jay, and I spell it with an exclamation point at the end because I think that makes it uh, sound more exciting. So, th and that's how they refer to me on the show.
so that that's how you'll know that it's me. And if that doesn't excite you enough to get you to go listen to the show, then I have no idea what would. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good one, everybody. And I'll talk to you soon. Although, maybe not tomorrow. Bye.